You're listening to All Things Video, a podcast dedicated to uncovering the past and charting the future of the online video ecosystem. This episode is brought to you by Paladin, the premier technology provider for multi-channel networks and digital media companies, including Maker Studios, Awesomeness TV, Studio 71, and more. The Paladin platform streamlines processes, increases efficiency, and grows revenue for media companies that represent more than 200,000 content creators and a collective 15 billion monthly views. Visit paladinsoftware.com to learn more or request a product demo. You're listening to All Things Video. I'm your host, James Creech, and today's guest is Lee Esner, President and COO at Jukin Media. Lee, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, excited to have you here. Tell us a little bit about Juke and Media. What does the company do? Sure. So our world really revolves around user-generated content. You can think of all the amazing video clips captured by people's surveillance footage, GoPros, phones in their pockets. And basically, we go out and we find the best of the best. We acquire the rights to it, which for us is all media worldwide, perpetuity and exclusive so that we can maximize really what we're going to do with that video content. And for us, that goes down two paths. One is making the library available to TV shows, clip shows, morning shows, news shows, digital publishers like AOL, Huffington Post, and Yahoo, and brands who are increasingly using this content as creative, mainly TV commercials, but increasingly digital campaigns. And then the other side of the business is how we take the same library of content and we basically package it into longer form programming that digitally are doing about two and a half billion views per month right now and go all the way up to having a TV show on in 220 markets around the world. So Thank you've you. got clips that you go out and acquire and then you either license it to third parties or you're using it for your own programming and distributing it digitally. Hopefully it's an and as opposed to an or because yep. our goal is to maximize how much money we're going to make from every single piece of content and how much money we're going to make for the original content owner. And therefore, our goal is to use it in, in all parts of the business. Awesome. So how do you initially find the content? So we have a team of people globally who are basically using our technology backend, which we built to help us both discover and acquire the content. And I'd say that uh, today, that's probably about 80% workflow. The technology piece of it is 80% workflow, 20% sort of discovery base. So basically identifying uh, trending indicators and in content way before it goes viral so that we can identify the best content. Uh, increasingly, that piece of it, the piece where we're using technology to identify the early indicators of virality is becoming a more and more important part of it. So we basically have uh, people around the world using this technology platform and identifying the best content that system is sort of fed by our existing experience with content. So by having, I mentioned the two and a half billion views per month, by having that scale in, in our inventory, we basically can sort of leverage the data that is thrown off by all of those views to understand what content works and what content doesn't work. So we can see that, for example, uh, news content works particularly well or not well. News content has the highest lifetime value or the lowest lifetime value. And we can use the data both in terms of views and monetization to hone in on the best content to acquire for the business. Are you discovering content on predominantly social platforms, YouTube, Facebook, Reddit, et cetera, or all across the internet? Yeah, great question. We're, we're getting content from all over the internet. I'd say that today... The content that we're getting from submissions is becoming an increasingly important part, and that's coming from 
anywhere. And it's generally content that might not have ever been uploaded before. So we're getting a fresh look at content that's never been uploaded to the internet. And we might be the first person to actually upload it to the internet. Wow. So you're building an inbound pipeline of user submissions as well. And again, that's becoming an increasingly more important part of our world. And I think Part of the reason for that is we have TV shows on the air now in 220 markets around the world. We have some large digital brands, Vail Army, People Are Awesome, Pet Collective, Poke My Heart for Kids, Chicken Video. Having our owned and operated brands, having our owned and produced TV shows is getting the brand out there and resulting in more and more people submitting content to us directly. And that's becoming probably a much more important go forward uh, discovery vehicle for us. Well, we're sitting here in Juken HQ, which has grown tremendously since maybe a year ago when I was uh, here before. And you guys are what, up to 130, 140 people now, offices all over the world. What's fueling that dramatic growth? Yeah, so uh, exactly. We have about, about 130 right now, about 10 people in New York, 10 people in London, the balance here in the, in the U.S., I think increasingly we're looking at markets based on the data that we get and deciding where to put feet on the street. And historically that has been in European markets, but increasingly we're seeing uh, indicators that say Asia is a really strong market for us. So I could see some growth happening over the next few months in, in those markets. Any specific territories in mind for Asian expansion? China, Korea, I think Japan has been a great market for us, particularly on the licensing side. So I think that's sort of go for it growth. What's been driving the growth sort of up until now, I think has been really, again, the way we package the content is, is driven a lot of growth. It's driven growth in our ability to get more submissions and therefore have better content in the library at a, at a much lower ultimate cost to the business. Uh, the way we package it has been really important in terms of how we create brands. So the, the cost-effective nature by which we can sort of discover what programming works and what brands will work for us is really been a, a key driver for us in that we're able to cheaply test ideas and formats with the digital audience and sort of take the best programming formats, the best content, and use that to create the, the brands that we're creating and the TV shows that we're creating and sort of do that on a very informed basis. Whereas a lot of people who are creating content are sort of making bets, making investments and having some sort of understanding as to what success rates will look like. Maybe, you know, every 10th idea will be a positive idea. We can sort of cheaply and quickly test a lot of ideas by leveraging the scale of the digital audience we have and go out with the best content and the best ideas, both digitally and on, on linear. So tell us a little bit about how you met John and how you got involved in the business. So I met John probably about between three and four years ago. And uh, at the time I was working uh, for Idea Lab, I was an uh, entrepreneur in residence, executive in residence there. And I was looking at a lot of sort of companies and ideas and uh, thinking what I was going to do next. And I met John and, and I was really, really taken by one, the success he had had just the moment he started acquiring content. So he basically uh, was a clip show producer. He was buying content for clip shows and he was probably one of the first people to go out and leverage the internet. And at the time, YouTube, which a lot of people hadn't heard to go and discover and acquire the content. And I think a lot of the guys that he was working for much older, much more experienced sort of told him he was crazy for doing that. And he sort of proved them all wrong by getting more content 
more quickly than, than they had been able to in the past. And then he really recognized that ownership of IP was really, really critical. And he really couldn't own a TV show, but he could own the sort of individual units, the video units that made up the TV show. And he basically quit his job and started buying up the content. And I love the fact that he owned this asset that could then be sort of monetized. But I sort of came out of a product and technology sort of world and certainly saw an opportunity to leverage product and technology to both scale up the acquisition as well as the distribution of the content. Today, we distribute content via a licensing platform that's sort of like a Getty Images for video. We syndicate it to digital publishers with customized MRSS feeds. And so technology became really, really important for us. And at least we thought back then that it could be really important for us. Uh, It wasn't happening to the degree it's happening today. And, And I like John. He was young. He was a domain expert. I was generally in the startup world really drawn to ideas where there was a domain level expert at the earliest you know, founding stages of the company. And John was that domain level expert in that he had you know, been producing, really he'd been doing this his entire life, his entire professional life, producing content, using user-generated videos, finding user-generated videos. And so uh, I really liked that aspect of it. And we got along great. So basically started doing an hour a week, turned into two, turned into 10, turned into seven days a week very, very quickly. <laughs> I like how you say seven days a week. Yeah. because And still is seven days a week. Yeah, the entrepreneur's journey. Well, I had John on the show a few months ago, and he definitely shares kind of his part of the story as well. You know, discovering the challenges, doing it from a traditional media standpoint, right? Like finding clips to acquire for some of the traditional clip shows and then quitting his job, starting the business in his apartment and hustling, building this thing organically. Yeah, that's a great story. It's it's exactly right. And the growth has been pretty amazing. It's been about three years. It's been, I think we've gone from, you know, 15 to 20 people to 130 or so folks and revenues up, you know, 25 X. And so it's been, uh, it's been quite a, quite a three year period. Well, I want to hear about your time at Idea Lab and others. So why don't we travel back a bit and tell us how you started your career? You know, you were an attorney focused on corporate finance, M&A. What did you learn uh, from that early experience? So I started out, as, as you said, uh, doing corporate finance M&A, a big sort of sweatshop, New York law firm. Great experience. I got to work on some amazing transactions at a relatively young age. Uh, I knew I did not want to practice law for the rest of my life. I, I was definitely more interested in uh, moving over to the business side. And that opportunity sort of came when I was doing work for actually Idea Lab in those days had incubated a company called Wedding Channel, one of the first companies I incubated. And I wound up joining Wedding Channel relatively early and spending sort of the next seven years of my career helping uh, build and scale that company and ultimately sell that company. And so learned a lot along the way, particularly having lived through sort of the dot-com, the original dot-com boom and bust. And then by the way, having started a company after wedding channel and living through sort of the, the Lehman crash and that sort of dot, you know, secondary web, web 2.0 bust period, I guess you'd call it, uh, learned a lot really from those experiences that have definitely informed how I think about operational issues and challenges here. And I'd say that that's probably one of the primary factors that we've really not taken. We've taken investor capital, but we haven't touched any investor capital. And I think, uh, at least for me, having lived through those two periods and seeing what happens when you're not, you know, sort of 
set up with a good balance sheet and, and really a sound business model, it, it's really hard to survive periods like that. And I wanted to make sure that knowing that there will likely be another period like that, that should we get to that point that our business will be sound, our operations will be able to fund the business. And to me, it's a much safer way to operate. And so certainly I've been informed by having had those experiences in, in my life. Yeah, it's a very different perspective. And it feels like this generation of entrepreneurs hasn't necessarily been through a big bubble or crash yet, though a lot of people seem to indicate that one may be coming. What's your take on that? Thanks for pointing out that I'm from the prior generation. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. Okay, yes, I just I, think, I you know, some people... That. <laughs> that's, excuse me, that was not what I was <laughs> He is very young and agile. But uh, I think, you know, you're right. You lived through the dot-com bubble. And a very direct... I mean, WeddingChannel.com was the name of the business. And yeah. uh, we saw a lot of... You know, we saw some early successes. But we also saw kind of a mad rush to raise money. And I think maybe we're seeing a bit of that in the online video space today. That early on... MCNs were a very attractive business, and now they're kind of being forced to demonstrate, well, do you become a talent management business? Do you become a studio or some other kind of commercial success working with brands? So I think it's smart. I think it's great that you guys have have set out with that philosophy and that built into your DNA. We are going to build a business the right way with good fundamentals. Yeah, it's so critical, and we talk about it every day. In fact, something that we say here very often is that it's more important what we say no to than what we say yes to. We've had we've had some nice success, which has been great, but the result of that has been we have sort of a lot of shiny things being thrown our way and a lot of different opportunities to do really interesting things. Not all of them are economically sound. Not all of them are uh, strategically relevant for us. And so we say no to a lot of things. And, and sometimes that's really hard when something might be maybe higher profile or really look good on, in a press release. And you're saying no, because the economics of the relationship or the, or the transaction don't make sense. And so uh, we, we focus a lot on focus and on the importance of what we say yes and what we say no to. And again, that's driven by having gone through that period and really coming out of that period both times because of the decisions that were made while, while things were actually good and having a solid balance sheet and not getting in over our heads and sort of trying to act like adults and being responsible. It's tough to do when everything around you seems like big press release, you know, chasing those shiny objects all the time. There's a lot yeah. of pressure to do that. But you're right. When you stick yeah. to the fundamentals, I think long term, you'll have better success. Yeah, I think that's right. So you mentioned, you know, talent management and things of that nature. And, you know, in our business, we've had a lot of opportunities, in fact, to sort of be more of a, let's call it a traditional MCN where we're rolling up channels or creators and, and representing talent. And we've really resisted that in favor of our own brands and our own IP because we think that at the end of the day, the ownership of brand and IP and the ability to create derivative brands and derivative IP from the original IP are what give you staying power and leverage as you grow a business. Well, look at what those MCNs are doing today. Yeah. Not trying to move from these broad-based talent networks to building original IP. So Absolutely. I think That's you... been on our core from the start. Exactly. So let's talk a little bit more about your transition from corporate finance, M&A, to an operator. What was that like? Great. Challenging. Uh, for me, I think that, and for anybody, by the way, who's thinking about or wanting to actually make that transition from you know, being sort of a, a lawyer or a transactional person to being an operational person, I think that a really key part of the ability for me to do that was really 
joining an early stage company where the founders, the existing sort of management structure, were willing to basically say, okay, you know, kid, if you, if you want to do that, then yeah, if you're willing to put your hand up, we're willing to give you a chance. And so really two things. One, I was willing to put my hand up to say I wanted to do more than just be sort of a, a lawyer and, and work on the transactions. And two, the people I was working with and for were more than willing to sort of give me that ability. And, and I could definitely see, because I've had friends who have wanted to sort of transition out of uh, legal and be more operational where they're working for companies, maybe they're larger companies and they, they take a role as a, an associate GC or general counsel. And that is their role. And folks are sort of not willing to let them venture outside that role. So for me, one, I was willing to put my hand up to, I was working for people who were willing to let me do more. And once I had a taste of sort of that side of the business, it was, you were hooked. I, I was definitely hooked. <laughs> I won't say, it's because I worked less. I, I think I, in many respects, had to work harder, but it was a very, very different sort of quality of life when you are sort of not being driven by a client who wants something at midnight. And, you know, you might be, I might be up at midnight doing something, but it's because I'm doing it for my company, you know, our employees, and there's a big difference. So for me, it's, it's great. And not to, no disrespect meant to anybody who wants to not be a lawyer and, and is still acting as a lawyer. Great profession. Learned a lot. I'd say that I, I use some element of, of what I learned while I was a corporate lawyer in, in my business every single day. So I definitely value the time. I value the experience. It's uh, It was definitely a very important part of my life. I've heard some consultants go through similar transitions as well, right? You get a great set of skills in two, three, four years as a management consultant. But then if you're looking to get into a startup, what are some of the things that these types of people should look for? How do you evaluate the right fit in order to make that transition? What are the skills you need to learn or bring to the table? Yeah, so you definitely have to be willing to work for less money than, you, than you're going to earn when you're working for a large institution, whether a consulting firm, accounting firm, law firm, investment bank, the economics are, are vastly different. You're working much more for equity than you are for current salary. So you've got to be willing and able to, to accept that. And then I'd say that the ramifications of your choices and what you do and, and the quality of the work you do, obviously, it's, it's much more impactful because it's your company and you're working for the equity. And so, you know, if you, if you screw up a deal, it's your company that you're affecting. If you sort of don't do the best job you can do and you're sort of on the advisory or consulting side, you go on to the next one and maybe you won't get a great reference from that client, but the ramifications aren't nearly as, as significant. So you have to learn or at least understand, which it's pretty easy to do that, you know, your, your, the quality of your work will impact you much more directly than if you're a service provider. So I think uh, those are two things that you probably have to understand pretty quickly. How do they make the right choice? How do you evaluate the right startup, whether it's team or product or funding and risk level? When do I enter the business? I mean, that's, it's a big change from someone who's used to a very large bureaucratic environment to moving to a highly ambiguous, uncertain environment. For sure. I think one of the more important things that you need to sort of consider is the people you're going to be working with, right? Because one, they have to be people that are willing to give you the chance to sort of step outside of your bubble of what you have historically done in your career and, and do more, which comes to, back to what we talked about earlier in terms of 
not only do you have to put your hand up and want to do more, you have to be working for people who are willing to let you do more. So you have to understand that you're working for people that will let you do more if you want to do more. And then just generally speaking, you will be spending a ton of time with these folks. And John and I, I have more, sadly, more meals with John than I do with my wife and daughter. So the time that I'm not going to be with my wife and daughter needs to be time really well spent and with people I love to work with. And I feel that way about the, the whole team here and I love the company, but more importantly, I love the team and, you know, you're with them and good times and bad times and there's always going to be challenges. And so has to be somebody that you respect and believe in and, you know, you talk respectfully to one another, you can have vigorous debates and disagree. And oftentimes that's how you're going to get to the right place in, in, in any given decision that you have to make. So understanding who you're going to be working with and understanding that they're going to allow you to do more and treat you respectfully and value your opinion. Those are all really critical things. Hard necessarily, hard to potentially understand in an hour interview. And so I think, you know, John and I have the ability to spend a bunch of time together before I had to fully commit. So that was helpful because again, it went from an hour to two to seven days a week pretty quickly. So that's really important. And then I think that stage of company is probably important. I'd say that the earlier the stage, obviously the reward potential is much higher. You'll probably earn significantly less. And you have to sort of be comfortable with that. If you want to be at a place where, you know, title matters and salaries matter, then it's probably going to be a later stage company where you have at least probably have raised more money or have the ability to raise more money at the earliest levels. You have to be really comfortable with this crazy emotional swings. The highs are much higher. The lows are much lower. And so getting comfortable with the stage that you're going to be working at is, I think, pretty important. And that can be a shock for somebody who comes from a you know giant consulting firm or a giant law firm where, again, you have the stability. It's much more sort of even keeled in terms of what your day-to-day is going to be like going to then a small tiny company where you're living, you know, I won't quite say paycheck to paycheck, but you might be living paycheck to paycheck and the company might be living paycheck to paycheck. But those highs and lows are what we call the fun part. I love it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But it's definitely more emotional. It's not more stressful. And Mm -hmm. that comes back to making sure that your, your partners are your partners in good times and bad. You know, the people you work with, everybody can be nice to one another when everything's going well. It's how people treat each other when they're not going so well. And every company goes through that. And that's 100%. that's when you really know who, who your good partners and, and team members are. So on the flip side of that, now that you're on the other side of the table and maybe hiring some of these people with transactional backgrounds, uh, what do you look for? How do you discern who is going to be able to make that transition to the operator side and who maybe, you know, isn't quite ready yet? So stage is really relevant to that. And I think if you would have asked me that question two and a half or three years ago, the type of person we're looking for then is different than the type of person we're looking for now. I'd say two and a half, three years ago, you know, John and I were sort of heads down, rarely out of the office. We were all doing everything. Everybody on the team was sort of chipping in and and handling what they could handle and sort of just making sure everything that needed to get done was going to get done. 
there wasn't a lot of specialization in those days, right? Today, I think, you know, we have departments, we have a, you know, tier of management, we have or different tiers of management. And I think there is much more sort of expertise around the particular roles that we have. So today when we're hiring, I think we're looking generally for people who do the thing we're hiring for really, really well and have sort of much more specialization and experience. Uh, that is very different than when we were sort of building it and you're looking for, I'd say, more sort of Swiss Army knife utility players. We still have sort of the utility player folks out here but or in the company, but it's definitely much more target in terms of what people are focused on in their day-to-day. Let's talk about the leap you took in 1999 when you started your own company, right? WeddingChannel.com was ultimately acquired by The Knot for around $89 in September 2006. And then you founded Access DNA, also known as Inherited Health, which was an online health resource to help people identify hereditary disease risk. So tell us a little bit about that, that leap, that experience. Sure. So... I, as we talked about, I was a lawyer for the first seven and a half years of my career. And then I made the leap to sort of the startup web 1.0 world. And, and I love that great experience. Spent the next seven and a half years helping uh, build and ultimately sell Wedding Channel in 2006. I happened to get married actually the same month we sold Wedding Channel to The Knot. And so after having worked for about 15 years killing myself, I decided to do something slightly crazy, which was basically buy two one-way round-the-world tickets, and my then-new wife and I basically took off on a on a round-the-world trip for almost a year, which was amazing and had always wanted to do it. I had traveled so much and accumulated so many miles, I was actually able to buy the entire round-the-world ticket for both of us using my frequent flyer miles. So that was nice. But the great part about that trip was we wound up getting pregnant with our daughter, which was awesome. Uh, she's now uh, eight. But during the pregnancy, we actually had some experience with genetic counseling and genetic testing. Uh, everything was fine. But I came away from that experience feeling like, wow, this is really, really important. Something that I felt like I had sort of special access to because I went to a you know good Beverly Hills OBGYN and could pay for testing outside of, you know, put it on my credit card and I have to go through my insurance company. And that was in days when there was not a, what they call the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act. So that was important back then. And I sort of felt like the process that I went through could have been something that could have been more freely available to lots of people wherever they sat, if you could sort of create a technical solution to the, to the problem. And so I basically partnered with our geneticists to create the company And basically, the theory of the company was we could take your family tree and we could overlay the health data in the family and we could use that to assess clinical disease risk and then sort of refer you to the right service providers to help you avoid something you were potentially predisposed to genetically. I think we were way before our time. Uh, This was even before I think 23andMe, which a lot of people know about now, was created. Uh, but it was really an amazing experience. I was sort of hooked on the startup world and that was from the Wedding Channel experience. And so I really wanted to start something. I was very passionate about the mission because of our experience when we were pregnant with our daughter. And so we started that company, wound up selling it four years later to a partner of ours, a company called Informed Medical Decisions. Uh, they now own the asset and uh, still uh, involved as a stockholder. I was on their board for some time, but they're they're applying for it. And I think today they're the largest provider of genetic counseling and testing services to large enterprise 
So healthcare companies, insurance companies, et cetera. We were a consumer facing business. My goal was to sort of offer the service for free to anybody who had a need and they're sort of offering the same service to their sort of institutional clients. And I think that it's still early, but I think they're doing uh, really, really important work and I'm glad to have been a part of it. That's fascinating. And so cool that you took an experience you had and something you were extremely passionate about and were able to kind of take that and create a company that gave back as well. Yeah, I was definitely passionate about the mission. I think it was a little bit of a challenge for me to be a non-MD in 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 a world controlled by MDs and in a world where the FDA really did sort of control your destiny, at least they did ours, because these tests were really on the radar screen in those days for the first time of the FDA. And I know 23andMe in those days and Navigenics and some other companies were treated pretty aggressively by the, by the FDA. And it sort of, I think they've moved past that period, but it was definitely a challenge and probably not my favorite part of the experience. But, uh, but again, definitely passionate about the mission. Working in healthcare as a non-MD was definitely a challenge. So what were the differences between being an early employee at Wedding Channel and being the founder of your own company? When you're the founder and there's no other employees, clearly on, on day one, you're, you're sort of doing everything. And, you know, I think a lot of my experience from the Wedding Channel days definitely informed sort of the steps I was going to take going forward. Uh, being an early employee, at least there was a little bit of a of an infrastructure in place. In those days, you know, coming out of Idea Lab, Idea Lab's whole purpose was to give infrastructure and, and, and give the sort of basic building block tools to early startups. So we had that, which was great. You know, I was not the founder of Wedding Channel, so I didn't have the core vision. It definitely felt different being the founder and having employees because, you know, you don't raise money, you don't have the ability to make your, you know, pay your employees. It's definitely sort of all on your shoulders. I didn't feel that quite the same when I wasn't the founder. Again, the, the high is much higher, the low is much lower is, you know, applies to both going from a later stage, more institutional experience, big corporate corporate law firm or consulting firm to a startup, as well as from being in a startup as a non-founder and then being a founder. It's it's definitely extreme and a lot of pressure. But again, I, I love it. And it helps if you're passionate about the mission. And I think that, you know, everything I've done, I've been pretty passionate about the mission. And I think that's a key driver. So after that acquisition uh, for Access DNA, then you went back to ID Lab. That's when you were the EIR, exactly, uh, Entrepreneur yeah. in Residence. Mm-hmm. And so what was involved in that role and what were some of the companies you worked with at the time? So when I was at Idea Lab for sort of the second go around, I, I think I sort of focused on two different things. One was I was trying to find a company that could be sort of spun out of Idea Lab. So I was sort of given a, a handful of assets, product and, and technology assets to basically go and sort of try some basic uh, MVPs around some business ideas to see where there could be an opportunity to build a larger company. So looked at a lot of ideas, threw a lot of things against the wall. Uh, that was one part of it. The other part of it was helping just sort of look at things they were already invested in. Uh, there was a fund at the time. And so worked a bit with the fund guys looking at some of the things they were uh, looking at and investing in. And just a really fun place to be. And you get to see a lot of really cool companies and ideas. And Bill Gross, obviously a very legendary guy. Really amazing to be in the building, seeing 
what's in there today and what's come out of there, the successes. It's been amazing. So that was sort of the, the, the two sides of what I was doing. And you still serve as a mentor and advisor to a number of early stage companies. What are some of the you know, common pieces of advice that you give to them? Hope is a really crappy strategy. Seems to come up a lot. I see financial models. I read decks. And I think when you really sort of press and push on some of the assumptions in some of the, the decks and the models, you realize that they're maybe not based in reality and, and hope is a part of the strategy. And, and I find myself really pushing early you know, founders and entrepreneurs to really focus on as quickly and cheaply as possible, sort of proving out whether or not your assumptions are valid or viable. And that could mean uh, sort of building a basic web page and driving 10 people to it and seeing if 10 people are interested in converting or clicking on a link to buy something or do something and really getting an understanding at, a, at, at the micro level whether or not something's viable. I think there's a lot of, a lot of folks with, with big ideas and some of them solve real problems. Some of them are chasing problems to be solved that don't really exist. And so, you know, I think I, I try to help people figure out if they're onto something with as little cost and risk as possible. And what are some of the other mistakes that startups commonly make? And by the way, I will say that I've, I've had so much less time over the last two and a half, three years, because this has been just all encompassing, probably one of the most fun things I've ever done professionally being involved with Jukin. It's definitely uh, occupied uh, a lot, a lot of time. So I've had much less time for uh, some of the other sort of things that I was doing maybe beforehand, but, but I love doing it. And so question was how mistakes. What are some of the biggest, yeah, or most common mistakes that you see startups make that, you know, you try to counsel them against? Sounds like hope should not be a part of the strategy. What are some of the other things, whether it's, you know, with fundraising or making key hires or, you know, looking at building out a product early on, what were some of the, the problems that they run into? Yeah, I think that a common problem that I think kills a lot of startups is overscaling in some element of the business. It could be overscaling by raising too much money and losing focus. It could be overscaling the people you hire by hiring people who are maybe too expensive and not really uh, the right resource to be hiring at, at an early stage. It could be overscaling in product features, trying to build too much into your product. I think overscaling is what in some way, shape or form kills most companies that die. And I think, in fact, the I want to say the Startup Genome Project had done a study of some number, 5,000, 10,000 startups. And I think something along those lines was sort of the finding in terms of what kills most companies. So I think, again, I really try to hone in on trying to prove the viability of an idea with as little cost and risk as possible. And you know, some people call it minimum viable product. I call it minimum awesome product. It should, it should do the minimum things necessary to see if it can solve a problem, but it should do it flawlessly in that there should be no bugs and it should look great so that at least you take bugginess and sort of awful UI out of the equation as to whether something's viable. And I think you can do that more and more so today than ever 
really, really inexpensively. Let's switch gears here and move to some rapid fire questions. You mentioned your love of travel, the trip that you and your wife took all over the world. What were some of the highlights of that trip or what some of the upcoming travel that you're excited about in the future? Uh, well, we spent our time for each of the summers living in a city and studying the language. Uh, it was for our winter, their summer, we lived in Argentina. And then for our summer, their summer, we did the same in Spain. And we're actually going back to Spain because maybe this is too much information, but we were in Spain when we wound up getting pregnant with our daughter. So we try to take her back there every year, if at all possible. So we are your Spanish? heading back. I wish I could say my Spanish was better. My wife is pretty fluent, but I'm sort of like a deer in headlights when I try to speak it. So I was maybe a little better back then, but uh, it's okay. Mas o menos. <laughs> and any, any other places on the list in terms of new destinations to explore? Oh, boy. New destinations. Uh, never been to Tokyo. Would, Tokyo's would, great. Would, would love to go to Tokyo. We didn't we, Because when we traveled, we tended to stay sort of where the sun was. So we sort of moved from Northern hemisphere to the Southern hemisphere as the summer moved from our hemisphere down to the other hemisphere. We, we tended to uh, travel very light and not have warm clothes. And so I think that uh, Tokyo would be a great spot, uh, maybe Beijing. So maybe more in Asia, we got as far North, I think is Shanghai. Cause it was, it was pretty cold that time of year there. Uh, we love Europe. So any chance we get to go to Europe, Africa, Safari was pretty spectacular. Um, so we'd love to do that again with our daughter and uh, have her experience that. That was pretty amazing. What are some great books that you've read recently? have not read a lot of books recently, but I would say that in probably one of the most impactful books, particularly for doing startup stuff that I've read was The Innovator's Dilemma. Clayton Christensen, I think, is the, I believe so. is the author really impactful on how I look at a lot of the startups that I've been involved with and, and continue to advise. And so uh, that, that was definitely one. Lean Startup is certainly for anybody who's doing startup-related stuff, should read the Lean Startup, Eric Reese's book. Uh, I actually, when I started doing startups was before he had written that book. And I think his mentor, which led to his writing that book, was uh, Stephen Blank, who, read, who wrote... Uh, Four Steps to the Epiphany, which was sort of the original customer development focus sort of MVP model. And that was when I had started Access DNA, that was required reading for everybody who was involved. It was really uh, transform transformational also to how I thought about building a company. Yeah, all great recommendations. And uh, talking about your startup experience, were there any failures that ended up being a, a huge learning experience? What are some of the, the tough times that you learned from? Tough times. Oh, boy, there were so many. So let's see. I would say that as easy as it is to give the advice to focus on MVP and to launch something before you spent a lot of time and money and get, get it out there and get learning, it's really hard advice to follow. And I feel like every product that I've been involved with building in startups I've been involved with, I always come back and say, I could have launched that faster and cheaper. If it took me six weeks and $60,000, I probably could have done it in three weeks and $30,000. And I think I, I've, I've always felt like I could do more, more quickly for less. Do more with less. And uh, do more with less. Thank you. That's generally a big one. I'd say that 
you know, with, without making any commentary on people that I've been involved with, as I'd say, choose your investors really wisely because you are stuck with them in good times and bad and do your diligence on them. Make sure that they understand the stage at which the company is. So I'd say choose your investors really, really carefully. Uh, I've probably not always done that. And you tend to learn the hard way when you make those choices. What's coming next if you had to make three predictions about the online video space or about you know, content licensing in general, what do you see coming? International is definitely, I think, a big opportunity for a lot of folks who are doing what we're doing. Obviously, you know, there are video platforms being created all over the world. In every market, there's a Verizon who's launching a Go90 and they all need content. And so I think you will have a lot of folks in the U.S. really trying to figure out how to make their content available on a global basis. We've always done that because, you know, cat videos and cool skateboard videos, a lot of our content doesn't need translation and it translates easily if it does need translation. And so international is definitely uh, something I think you're going to see more and more people chasing because there are, there are just dollars globally right now for content, which is great. It's an awesome time to be a content creator. Uh, I feel like I'm not going to be saying anything like revolutionary when I say the following, but uh, 360 and VR is going to be transformative uh, and live is going to be transformative. And all of those are relevant to us as well. Uh, 360, uh, we were at Mobile World in Barcelona and we saw the little Samsung cube that takes 360 degree video, which is really exciting to us because what we've seen in terms of our content acquisition and content submissions is the creativity and the type of content that gets captured out there is constantly changing and evolving. And with the 360 video, now we're seeing just amazing 360 footage. And so there's going to be a whole new world of opportunity around UGC and 360 that I think is really uh, interesting and exciting. And live, Facebook Live has been really interesting. We had a video, the Chewbacca Mom, which I think was one of the, if not the most widely viewed. Biggest video of the year, probably. Yeah, and so that's been, you know, that's been amazing. And I think we'll see more of those. So uh, I think those are three areas where we're going to see a lot of growth and excitement, a lot of people uh, chasing opportunity. I love it. International uh, VR and 360 immersive video and finally live streaming. Yeah. Agree more. Yeah. All awesome areas. And if you were starting a business in the online video space today, what would you do? I think I would do exactly what I'm doing right now. I think this is such a huge opportunity. There is so much UGC out there and there is really so much opportunity to package it in fun and interesting in different ways to create, again, longer form programming and, and new brands and I think that's a really interesting area. And I think that a sub part, and we certainly do this, but I think that there can probably be some really interesting solutions around uh, IP protection, copyright protection, uh, particularly on linear. I think you have Content ID and Facebook's working on its version of Content ID to help uh, rights holders manage the rights around their IP. Uh, it's getting harder and harder to do that. And I think there's a lot of opportunity for someone to create some really great software technology to 
help make the rights management piece much more efficient. We could have a whole podcast on digital rights management and the limitations, yeah. even of digital fingerprinting solutions like Content ID and Facebook's yeah. rights manager tool. I think you're absolutely right, right? It's a, it's a huge thorny problem and the problem gets exponentially more difficult every day because the number of people adding, yeah. you know, uploading content to these platforms is much larger than the number of engineers working on them. Yeah. And there are some inherent limitations to what a fingerprint or a watermark technology can do. So there are needs for other rights management solutions. We're, you know, tackling a number of them, yeah. but we're not alone. There's several others yeah. who are looking at different pieces of the digital rights management equation. Yeah, for sure. So I think there'll be some really creative solutions in the, in the next few years. Let's hope so. That's, maybe, maybe from you guys. Yeah, we'll see. We're working on a few. So uh, where can people find out more about you, Lee, and more about Jukin? So Jukin, well, the website, jukinmedia.com. About me, I suppose LinkedIn is a place, and uh, I get a lot of emails from folks, and I try to be helpful and try to be responsive, uh, particularly people who come from one of my alma maters. So email is probably the best way. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. It's awesome to hear about your experience and the transition from you know, the transactional background, being an operator to starting a company, growing and scaling businesses and serving as a mentor and advisor for startups. So much information in there. I love it. I uh, really appreciate you taking the time to be on the show. Thanks for the time uh, interviewing me. Yeah, this was great. Thanks for tuning in. I'm James Creech, and this has been another edition of All Things Video. If you like what you hear, we hope you'll share and subscribe for new episodes. See you next time. you